0: Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, it is our custom to have a few moments of silent prayer. Scripture teaches that at the moment you put your faith alone in Christ alone, you have eternal salvation. That salvation is secured by Jesus Christ's death on the cross. In that death, He paid the penalty in full for every single sin in human history. At the moment you believe in Jesus Christ, you are, among other things, adopted into His royal family. As a member of His royal family, we have, from the very beginning of our salvation, a close rapport with our Heavenly Father. But the instant that we sin, that rapport is broken, that fellowship is breached, and there is a, a sin has interfered in our ongoing relationship with God. It, we don't lose our salvation, we just lose our fellowship. But God has given us a basis for recovery. We simply admit or acknowledge our sin to Him. Scripture says if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And at that instant that we admit our, our sins to Him in silent prayer, then at that instant we receive that full forgiveness, we are restored to fellowship, that rapport is regained, the filling of the Holy Spirit is recovered, and our spiritual advance can resume. This is why we uh, do this every week. Uh, some people have said, well, it's so mechanical, we just do it every week. Well, that's how you learn. It's not that in your life or my life it is a mechanical rote thing, but Uh, In teaching, we repeat this week after week, Bible class after Bible class, to make sure we all learn this. So we begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, You are the God who created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. You are the God who designed a perfect plan for the salvation of the human race from eternity past before You had ever created the first creature. Before You created man, You knew that man would sin and that would need a Redemptor. And that Redemptor is Jesus Christ. He is the Redeemer who has paid the penalty in full. He is the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the earth. And He is the one who paid for every one of our sins. Father, because You are who You are and He has done what He has done, we come together and worship You. We study Your Word because in Your Word You tell us who You are, who we are, what Jesus Christ has done for us. And You as the Creator define for us the framework for understanding the creation. And as we study Your Word, we come to understand how You think and we can orient our thinking to Your thinking. Now, Father, as we study Your Word and we continue our study on this uh, central topic, this doctrine of worship in the Scripture, that we will understand this more fully and that it may impact and help us to understand why we do what we do as we gather together as a corporate entity to worship You. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Before we begin our study of the Word, there is an important event that takes place today. This is the anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence for the state of Texas. Now, for those of you who have not been here on Tuesday night or Thursday night for the last week or so, I have started a little series where I am uh, sort of walking the congregation through the events of 1836 and beginning last week because uh, a could go from yesterday was the 23rd of February, which is when... Uh, Santa Ana, who was the dictator of Mexico, uh, first arrived in, San, in uh, San Antonio and, uh, surrounded the Alamo. And so we are, have been going through day by day the events that took place in the Alamo. And, uh, the, the Alamo does not fall until, uh, sometime later, uh, this week in about a, in about a week. So we are studying the, uh, this whole process of Texas history, not just to study it, but to remind ourselves of the reason that they fought and died was to give us liberty and to remember that we have a very special privilege in this nation, and that is the privilege of liberty, and that this was recognized by our forefathers as a, as a need because they understood what tyranny was, and we live in a generation that has forgotten what tyranny is. And they are willing, it seems, there are many who are willing, as each decade goes by, to give up more and more of those inalienable rights that are spoken of in our National Declaration of Independence for the sake of security and the sake of uh, maintaining an illusion of affluence and privilege. And it is because, at the very core of our national character, we no longer have that which those generations had, and that is an understanding of reality that is based on the Word of God. Now that doesn 't mean they were all Christians or they all had good doctrine, but it does mean that that the culture at that time was influenced by the Word of God, and this shaped their thinking on many, many. Uh, issues, especially that of government and that of personal liberty. On March the 1st, 54 delegates arrived in Washington on the Brazos to uh, very rapidly dec- uh, come up with a Declaration of Independence for the Republic of Texas to separate from the government of Mexico, and they were under under duress in terms of time because the Alamo was already under under siege. They met and they uh, established a committee of uh, five delegates to draft uh, draft the document. And then as they did that, they established officers for the New Republic, which included David Burnett, who was the, to be the president, Lorenzo de Zavala as vice president, Samuel P. Carson as secretary of state, Thomas Rusk as secretary of war, Bailey Hardiman as secretary of treasury, and David Thomas as the attorney general. They wrote in the Texas Declaration of Independence the following. The unanimous Declaration of Independence made by the delegates of the people of Texas in general convention at the town of Washington on the second day of March, 1836. If you've never taken the opportunity, it's only about an hour drive from here, maybe less, to go up, take a nice day trip next next uh, month, or actually this month since it's already March. The Blue Bonnets will be out and the... Paint brushes. it's a good day trip, go up to Washington on the Brazos and learn a little Texas history. They then wrote, when a government has ceased to protect the lives, liberty, and property of the people, notice they got it right. The That was the original wording that was to be in the National Declaration of Independence of the 13 colonies, not... Not life, liberty, and happiness, but the original draft of the National Declaration was life, liberty, and property because it is the personal ownership and protection of private property that is at the foundation of a, of a, of a free, uh, free economy and a free people. When a government has ceased to protect the lives, liberty, and property of the people from whom its legitimate powers are derived and for the advancement of whose happiness it was instituted, and so far from being a guarantee for the enjoyment of those inestimable and inalienable rights, becomes an instrument in the hands of evil rulers for their oppression. When the federal republican constitution of their country, that is the Mexican constitution of 1824, which they have sworn to support no longer has a substantial existence, and the whole nature of their government has been forcibly changed without their consent from a restricted Federative republic composed of sovereign states to a consolidated central military despotism in which every interest is disregarded but that of the army and the priesthood, both the eternal enemies of civil liberty, the ever-ready minions of power, and the usual instruments of tyrants. When long after the spirit of the Constitution has departed, moderation is at length so far lost by those in power that even the semblance of freedom is removed, and the forms themselves of the Constitution discontinued, and so far from their petitions and remonstrances being regarded, the agents who bear them are thrown into dungeons, and mercenary armies sent forth to force a new government upon them at the point of the bayonet. When in consequence of such acts of malfeasance and abdication on the part of the government anarchy prevails and civil society is dissolved into its original elements. In such a crisis, the first law of nature, the right of self-preservation, the inherent and inalienable rights of the people to appeal to first principles and to take their political affairs into their own hands in extreme cases, enjoins it as a right toward themselves and a sacred obligation to their posterity to abolish such government and create another in its stead, calculated to rescue them from impending dangers and to secure their future welfare and happiness. Nations, as well as individuals, are amenable for their acts to the public opinion of mankind. A statement of a part of our grievances is therefore submitted to an impartial world in justification of the hazardous but unavoidable step now taken." of severing our political connection with the Mexican people and assuming an independent attitude among the nations of the earth. And then they begin a list of grievances, which I will not read through this morning, and conclude with, "...the necessity of self-preservation, therefore, now decrees our eternal political separation. We, therefore, the delegates with plenary powers of the people of Texas... In solemn convention assembled, appealing to a candid world for the necessities of our condition, do hereby resolve and declare that our political connection with the Mexican nation has forever ended, and that the people of Texas do now constitute a free, sovereign, and independent republic, and are fully invested with all the rights and attributes which properly belong to independent nations." And conscious of the rectitude of our intentions, we fearlessly and confidently commit the issue to the decision of the supreme arbiter of the destiny of nations. And then they signed it. I want to draw your attention to one statement made in the uh, third paragraph, and that is the statement that there was a shift from the Constitution of 1824 to a cons- uh, consolidated, Central military despotism in which every interest was disregarded except that of the military and the priesthood. That's the Roman Catholic Church, and so that was a big part of it because these Irish, Scotch-Irish Presbyterians that made up the mass of the southern migration to Texas just weren't going to allow themselves to be put into a system where they did not have any liberty of religion and liberty to uh, follow the dictates of the Scripture. So much that was done in that day was still done, motivated by the fact that people understood that history was governed by a personal sovereign God who acted in the affairs of man. As we have gotten further and further away from the Enlightenment, The culture influenced by the Enlightenment ideals has come to understand that religion is not really something worth fighting for, and Western civilization does not really grasp the fact that there are still people in this world for whom religious belief is something worth fighting and dying for. And so we have, we live now in a dangerous world where our freedoms are truly threatened. Uh, nationally, by many enemies, and the only protection we have is God. And if we as a nation do not recognize and do not accept and return to the basic principles as outlined in Scripture, then we will go the way of all other nations and all other empires in all of history. Because if we do not have the inner moral character and fiber, which can only come from an external absolute, then as a culture, one cannot survive. First, you have fragmentation of the individuals. Then you have the fragmentation of the family. Then you have the fragmentation of all of your various uh, social groupings within a nation, and then the fragmentation of the nation. And that is where we are today. This nation has never been more divided than it is now, and we hear this again and again and promises from various political leaders that they want to do things to pull everybody back together. But it can't be done from the top down. This isn't a government decision. This is not something that can be solved by government. Whenever uh, people think that government is the solution to their problems, then that is the path to tyranny. The solution to problems always comes from the people. And when the people do not turn to God who is the source of everything and the only solution to our problems, then all that will result is continued fragmentation and cultural collapse. Our subject this morning continues to be worship. We've been studying worship as part of our conclusion to Revelation chapter 4 and 5. Worship is an important doctrine to study today because it's not always talked about you go to some churches, and you walk in, and they have a more high, what we call high church form of worship. And there are various forms of liturgy The people walk through. You will be given a bulletin. There may be various creeds and various doctrinal statements that are uh, recited by the congregation. There is responsive reading, perhaps. There is music. Little is explained to people as to why they do what they do. They just go through this various, these, did you, have you lost the sound? And little is ever said about what worship is or corporate worship or why we do what we do and you have high church worship and you have low church worship and you have informal worship and you have contemporary Christian worship and all of these things that go on and nobody really knows why people do what they do on Sunday morning. And so we've been talking about these things under the category of the doctrine of worship. And as we looked at the Greek words and the Old Testament Hebrew words for worship, there were two ideas that were evident. The first is that of submission to God, and the second is the idea of service to God. And worship, the core idea of worship in both Old and New Testament, is the idea that we are submitting ourselves, our thinking in every area of life, To God and to his revelation to learn everything we can about the word of God to let it change the way we think that changes the way we act the way we live it changes our character and in all of that we worship God worship fundamentally starts with the individual and we have many examples that we've looked at of individual worship in the scripture. And then there is corporate worship in the Scripture. And corporate worship develops as we go through the Old Testament. And we start with the uh, corporate worship of all of the Israelites singing the song of Moses, hymn of praise to God, thanking Him for delivering them at the uh, at the Red Sea and for slaughtering the army of Pharaoh. And then we looked at the uh, hymn of Deborah and the singing of praise to God for delivering Israel. Israel from their enemies, the Canaanites, under Sisera and Jabin. And then we went on to look at the, how the temple worship developed as a result of, of uh, David, uh, David's work organizing the Levites, organizing choirs and guilds, and, and we looked at that in the Old Testament. And there's a couple of other things I want to point out from the Old Testament this morning before we, we move into the uh, New Testament. The core idea of worship, I said, is submission to God. We submit to God because He is the Creator. This is the, this is the theme of that first hymn of praise that we studied directed to God by the 24 elders in Revelation 4, because God is the Creator. He is the one who created all things. And because He is the Creator, He is worthy to be worshipped. And that word worthy is the, Etymological background to the English word "worship" it comes from the idea of worthship, because God is worthy to be created. So we sub, uh, worthy to be worshipped. So because He created, we submit to God as a sovereign Creator, and we express that authority orientation through gratitude, through praise. We sing songs that speak of His person and His works. The reason we sing is it focuses our attention upon who He is and what He has done. We worship through giving. We worship through rituals. In the church age, we have two, baptism and uh, communion, both of which speak of uh, spiritual realities, and we are reminded of what God has done for us in baptism. We are reminded of positional truth, our identification with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. And in communion, it is an ongoing reminder of who Jesus is and what He did. And the ultimate form of worship is learning His Word. Because as we learn His Word, the, His Word is the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 16, we learn to think as God thinks. God as creator defines reality, determines what everything is. We don't determine what it is from our own resources and from our own experience. God defines and determines everything. And it is only when we can orient to God that we can orient to reality as it is. Now as, uh, the Davidic monarchy unified the nation Israel, as David expressed his desire to God to build a permanent house for him, a temple in Jerusalem, God said, no, 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 you won't build the house, but I will make a house for you. He promised him a dynasty. We call that the Davidic covenant. And David was promised that his son would build a temple. So David began to prepare that's why he organized the Levites under those three clans related to Heman and Asaph and Jeduthun. And if you read the Psalms, you will see that each of those men wrote Psalms. Heman won't run song. Asaph uh, wrote a number of Psalms. So did Ethan or Jeduthun. And uh, those men were responsible for training and teaching music to uh, to Israel, and so you had this formal uh, structure that was established in Israel for uh, for the worship of God. And in 1 Chronicles chapter uh, 15, uh, 16, and 17, we're told about how David did this organization. And we looked at this at this last time. And uh, this was not a small feat, for they chose about 4,000 Levites out of 38,000 who would serve in the temple for as musicians. And this is described in 1 Chronicles 15:16 and in 1 Chronicles 23-5. And they were singers who would also play with musical instruments. Another key passage that we see is after the return of the... Or, or sometime later in Israel's history, before the Babylonian captivity, during the time of the Assyrian invasion, there is a true, genuine, spiritual uh, return to God under Hezekiah. And there's a restoration of temple worship. And at that time, there is a, an organization of temple worship, by, a reorganization by Hezekiah. And we read in Second Chronicles 29... Verses 25 and 26, some interesting aspects about this this, uh, restitution of temple worship. There we read, "...and he stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, with stringed instruments, and with harps, according to the commandment of David." So he's going back to the original instructions of David some um, 250 to 300 years earlier, and he doesn't change things. Uh, and he does this according to the commandment of David and of Gad, the king's seer. Now, a seer is another word for a prophet. It relates to the fact that a prophet would see, be given visions and see visions uh, from God in terms of revelation. And of Nathan, the prophet, these were the two men who held the office of prophet in David's administration. And what this verse tells us is that David did not just generate this whole idea of music and worship out of his own desire to serve God, but that it is the result of divine revelation. Now we're not told or given the details of that revelation, but we're told here that there was uh this revelation and and uh that it, all of this organization was done according to David's commandment, the commandment of Gad, the king's seer. David also had the gift of prophecy, though he wasn't a prophet, and of Nathan the prophet. For thus was the commandment of the Lord by his prophets. So this organization, all of this uh, musical organization in the choirs and everything, was a direct result of the commandment of God. Uh, Second Chronicles twenty nine twenty six: The Levites stood with the instruments of David and the priests with trumpets. <clears throat> and so this then describes what happened and what took place in Old Testament worship. Now, in verse 27, we read, Then Hezekiah gave the order to offer the burnt offering on the altar. When the burnt offering began, the song to the Lord also began with the trumpets, accompanied by the instruments of David. So you have the combination of the ritual of sacrifice with the, with the music that would direct the people's attention uh, to God. The music wasn't entertainment. It was designed to focus people's attention on God, who they were worshiping through the sacrifices. And so while the whole assembly worshiped, the singers also sang. Now the reason I point out that verse is because we live in a world today where in most of evangelical Christianity, worship has become a synonym for singing. And you call the song leader the worship leader. Now, whatever everything else is, maybe it's not worship. Well, what this verse shows is that the assembly is worshiping and the singing is mentioned as something distinct. It's still part of worship, but it's not the primary emphasis. The primary emphasis is always on the word and obedience to God. So while the whole assembly worshiped, the singers also sang, and the trumpet sounded, all this continued until the burnt offering was finished, and then verse twenty nine now at the completion of the burnt offerings, the king and all who were present with him bowed down and worshipped. that is, they are carrying out the mandates, as described in the mosaic law that is worship. Uh, the Mosaic law is not in effect today. we worship in different ways, as Jesus will point out. we 'll see that in John chapter four verse thirty more over King Hezekiah. And the officials ordered the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and Asaph the seer. So they sang praises with joy and bowed down and worshipped. Now, what were these praises for joy? These were the hymns, the Psalms. That's what we have. We have a hymn book in the middle of your Bible. Actually, it is right in the middle. You hold your Bible up, open to the middle. You hit Psalms. It's the largest book in the Bible. It's a collection of 150. Psalms; these are divinely inspired hymns, and they were the songs that uh, the Jews sang at in temple worship and at other times of, of worship throughout the uh, throughout the year. And they provide for us a pattern; they provide for us a a template for understanding the the lyrics and how lyrics should be written for, for psalms and for hymns. And so part of what I want to do this morning comes the, under the category of developing wisdom in the congregation. In the Old Testament canon, the canon was divided into three groupings. There, were the, there was the Torah, the instruction, the Mosaic Law, the first five books, the books of Moses, the Pentateuch. And then you had another uh, collection of works called the Nevi'im, the prophets. You had the former prophets and the latter prophets. And the former prophets uh, were composed of uh, Joshua and Judges and Samuel and Kings. And the latter prophets are the ones you and I normally think of in our English Bible as as prophets, the major prophets and what we call the minor prophets prophets. They're major because they're big books, and they're minor because they're shorter books, not because some are more important than others. They're major prophets of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and the minor prophets of uh, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Nahum, Jonah, Micah, and all of the twelve prophets. In the Hebrew Bible, they're just called the twelve. But those are the books of the uh, Nevi'im. And then you had another set of books that were called the Wisdom Books. The wisdom books. And wisdom in Hebrew thought wasn't what many of us in Western culture think of as wisdom. We've been influenced by Greek thought. We think of wisdom in relation to intellectual, uh, capability, philosophical, uh, profundity. But in the, in the ancient world, in, in the Hebrew thought, wisdom is something that's extremely practical. It's skill at living. One of the first uses of this word "hokmah" in the Old Testament occurs in relationship to uh, Aholiab and Bezalel who were the the craftsmen who are going to design and make the, the uh, ornaments and work on all of the uh, metalworking and the designs of the tabernacle. And the Spirit of God came upon them to give them, and it's actually translated skill at what they're doing. But the Hebrew word there is chokmah. And it has to do with taking the instruction, the native ability or whatever, the data that you're given in life, and then using that to create something of, of beauty and of value as we as God's creatures created in His image then reflect who He is in the outworking of creativity that we have some of us have more creativity than others but to whatever degree we have creativity we imitate god when we are are being creative and in our spiritual life we are to develop wisdom so that our lives we create something with our lives that has enduring eternal value uh, that produces something that is beautiful and glorifies god We learn the Word of God. That's a process of just learning information. And you always have to learn information. Any application is always predicated upon the acquisition of just information. But information isn't knowledge. That's the next step. And we live in a world today, we're calling it the information age, and we're overloaded with information and data. And with the use of, of computers today, I can study in six or seven hours And what I, what it used to take me three or four weeks to study in the library at Dallas Seminary when I was, when I was a student, but it's just information overload. I have access to, to, immediate access to more data than I could ever hope to go through in preparation. Uh, for a Bible class but it's just data it's just information information isn't knowledge but information can lead to knowledge and knowledge in the Bible is spoken of especially in the Greek New Testament in, with two different words there's gnosis and there's epinosis gnosis is more of an academic knowledge And academic knowledge always that's how we begin learning anything uh, you go and you know, I, maybe a simple example and I don't even know if it's this way anymore but I remember when I was in junior high, and back then you could get a Texas driver's license when you were 14. It's a scary thought today, isn't it? You could get your driver's license when you were 14, and so in the uh, ninth grade you were given a classroom, I think, just the classroom where you learned all about cars you learned about the traffic laws and you learned about basic things about the engine and motor and how everything worked and and what you were supposed to do and it was all theory it was all just basic basic information you needed to learn in order to drive and then after that at some time you take a course that we call behind the wheel and that's when you actually got in a car and began to scare people <laughs> and so you had those two elements and so the the academic portion is where you just gain knowledge that's just learning information, knowledge about God. And then epinosis is is what occurs when you believe it and it becomes assimilated into your thinking and you begin to apply it. Wisdom happens as you practice application and you begin to develop a skill of applying the word. And it starts to produce something of spiritual beauty in your life. And wisdom in the Old Testament literature, especially in Proverbs, is often tied to another word. The Hebrew word is being. I always remember that we learned it because being sounds like between. And that's what it basically means is this concept of between, learning to decide between two things. And so the word being came to mean discernment. And discernment is a function of wisdom because we're able to distinguish between not just that which is Bad and that which is good, that which is evil and that which is righteous. But discernment is understanding between that which is good and that which is better. That which is uh, maybe moral, maybe ethical, maybe fine, but that which is truly superlative and truly glorifies God and is the best for our spiritual life. So the concept of wisdom and understanding, are and, and discernment are linked together. In wisdom literature, and wisdom literature includes Job, the wisdom of dealing with suffering in your life, Psalms, wisdom applied in singing praise to God, Proverbs, wisdom is taking doctrine and applying it in, in different areas of life, Ecclesiastes is also wisdom literature, and the Song of Solomon. So this all relates wisdom. So we we sometimes take a little additional step in what we do. In, in Bible class, from learning the, the, the doctrine, the teaching of scripture, which relates to information, it relates to knowledge, and then we talk frequently about application, but sometimes we don't quite go to the, to this other step, which is really developing that skill at being able to discern between that which is good and that which is better. So I have a little exercise for us tonight, or this morning, to help us understand, uh, some of these things related to uh, wisdom in psalms and singing and, and that kind of thing. And so we're going to look at, first of all, I want to go to a contemporary Christian course. We're just going to look at the lyrics. There's two issues in, in music today. One is the lyrics, the other is music. Music is more complicated. Lyrics basically simple. And as we go through this little exercise, maybe it will help you develop some discernment as to what I keep talking about in terms of having quality music and quality, uh, quality hymns. Now, this first, this first, uh, chorus that we're going to look at, and the reason I've, I've chosen this is because the individual who wrote this is considered to be one of the better, uh, writers of Christian music today. He often has, uh, workshops for, uh, worship leaders and he, he plays and he's fairly well known. And so people think he's is he he's been called very good and very deep theologically. So that will give you a little clue as to where things are going today. Um, let me see. Here it is. The, the, the song is called, I Need You. And the words go like this. My heart is restless in me. My wings are all worn out. I'm not sure what he means by that. Um, interesting metaphor there uh, music hymns are often filled with metaphors but there's ways of discerning those you have the same thing in the psalms but I'm not sure what he means by this I'm walking in the wilderness and I cannot get out I need you oh I need you notice the repetition I missed one there there's a lot of I needs in here blessed savior come I need you oh I need you fill ever every longing of my soul oh how I need you lord I need your perfect word with tearful eyes to see that, that sin that I afford. Now, why as he's saying this, I want you to notice a tearful eye there. I need to weep and pray for all the thousand ways that I have failed you just today. What we're dealing with here is, uh, it, this would be like a penitential psalm in the Psalms, confession of sin, but it's, the emphasis here is totally based on me, It's based on the writer. It's all self-focused as we've studied, as we've gone through these hymns in the past. We've seen that even though they may talk about personal experience, they're always theocentric. This, hymn, this song is, like many, most Christian choruses today, it's anthropocentric. Also, we look at this term, this terminology, I need you, I need you. And what we see here is a focus on need orientation. And you may not realize this, but this whole concept of needs and focusing on what people need is an outgrowth of modern secular psychotherapy. You don't find this kind of terminology in the Bible the Bible never approaches anything from, man's, from the viewpoint of man's needs. Now, if you're a Maslowian hierarchicalist, this is great stuff. You've got your hierarchy of needs. But that's not the Bible. See, that's just human viewpoint worldliness. That's secular psychotherapy. This has nothing nothing to do with the Bible. Furthermore, it emphasizes remorse and uh, weeping and sorrow uh, as a means to somehow impress God that God needs to do something for me because I feel so badly about all of uh, my sin or whatever is going on in my life, so I need to weep and wail about this to get God's attention. So it encourages uh, wallowing in self-pity and wallowing in uh, guilt over, over what, Uh, what we have done, and the idea is that I need to weep and pray. You don't find that uh, kind of terminology anywhere in the Scripture. So he goes on in the basic course is this, this thing about, I need you, Lord, I need your perfect word. And, and because we see God words in here, like I need your word, uh, and we, we tend to think, oh, well, this is okay. But it's couched within a psychotherapeutic view of life and not a divine viewpoint view, uh, view of life. He goes on to say in the last part, there are many stanzas in between, and I'm not going to make you bilious by going through them all. I just want you to get a sense of the drift here. He says, Oh, how I love you, Lord. Uh, I love your perfect word. This is where he turns more toward God towards the end of the song, as Psalms do. And that's what he's trying to imitate. He says, I love your perfect word with tearful eyes. Once again, it's always back to this self-induced pity and sorrow. And um, I'm just so sad and sorrowful. He just made me just want to cry this morning. Uh, the God who always will endure, now I will celebrate for all the thousand ways that You have shown me grace and made my heart in grace to stay and made my heart in grace to say and made my heart in grace to say. So, you have repetition like that in the Psalms. I'm not, I'm not uh, criticizing that today. What I'm thinking about though is that in terms of these lyrics, they're, they're simplistic. They're simplistic, and it's not good poetry. I mean, this doesn't even rise to the quality of basic nursery rhymes. And see, if you look at the Psalms, we don't have the music. All we have is the words. It is considered, especially in the Hebrew, considered by people who don't even believe the Bible to be the great, some of the greatest poetry in all of human history. And you look at the words of many of the the, the great hymns that we sing and you just take the words apart from the music and read them and they are fabulous poetry. They follow the rules of good poetry. It's quality literature. Standing alone apart from the lyrics themselves, but when you take these words apart from the performance, apart from the music, and you look at them, they just barely even rise to the level of the trivial and the mundane, and we 're not even talking about their their theological uh, theological import okay well let 's having looked at that we have to have point of comparison this is how people learn things is they through comparison and contrast so let's look at a penitential psalm a penitential psalm we'll go from modern man's expression of his need psychotherapeutic oriented relationship to god to how this same kind of thing is expressed by david this is after he has committed adultery with Bathsheba he has conspired with Uriah the Hittite I mean with, uh, with Joab to have her husband Uriah the Uriah the Hittite uh, uh, killed and this is David's re- reflection to God, his prayer to God, and his reflection upon how sin has affected his life but he's not talking about how he needs God he is focusing more on the sin that he has done, how it has affected him, and he's not describing his misery to impress God. He is merely describing it because that is the effect that this sin has had on him, and this is part of the, the, the natural consequences of that sin. He says, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your wrath, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. The focal point from the beginning is directed to God as a prayer to God for grace despite his own failure. He says, For your arrows pierce me deeply, your hand presses me down. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your anger, nor any health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They're too heavy for me. My wounds are foul and festering because of my foolishness. I am troubled, I am bowed down greatly. I go mourning all the day long, for my loins are full of inflammation. He's talking about how, as the the, the guilt has worn on him, he's describing how this has affected him and impacted him even physically. He uh, He is in depression because of sin. But notice he's not crying out in terms of a needy psychotherapeutic framework. He is simply describing the effects to God says, I am feeble and severely broken. This is verse 8. I groan because of the turmoil of my heart. Lord, all my desires before you and my sighing is not hidden from you. My heart pants. My strength fails me. As for the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. My my loved ones and my friends stand aloof from my plague and my relatives stand afar off. In other words, he is saying now... Because this my sin has affected me so much, I'm in isolation. I've become almost non-functional, and my enemies are about to take advantage of me, and he is calling upon God to uh, rescue him from his own bad decisions. Verse 12, Those also who seek my life lay snares for me. Those who seek my hurt speak of destruction and plan deception all the day long. But I, like a deaf man, do not hear. And I, like a mute who does not open his mouth, thus I am like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth is no response. For in you, O Lord, I hope. See, this is where he focuses his attention on God. His only hope is in God. In you, O Lord, I hope. You will hear, O Lord, my God. For I said, hear me, lest they rejoice over me, lest when my foot slips they exalt themselves against me. He has expressed his his confession in the form of of an argument to God, to grant him forgiveness and to deliver him. It says, I'm ready to fall, and my sorrows continually before me, for I will declare my iniquity. I will be in anguish over my sin, but my enemies are vigorous, and they are strong, and those who hate me wrongfully have multiplied. He is in anguish over his sin, and we are at times in remorse and sorrow over sin in our life, Not because we got caught, but because we recognize how it has offended God. And there's nothing wrong with that, but that's not what impresses God to forgive us. We confess our sins and God forgives us because of Christ's work on the cross. It is not based on how we feel about it at the time. You may have a problem with impatience or anger. I know none of you are really impatient. You're a very calm group. You may have problems in time in your life with resentment or bitterness Uh, this is all part of being a sinner and having a sin nature. Whatever your trend is, whatever the area of weakness is in your soul, you know what it is and you know that maybe it's you're 20 years of age or 30 or 50 or 75 and you seem to think, Lord, I just seem to always fail these same tests in this same area. And so when you're 40 or 35 or maybe even younger and you've just you really let yourself go maybe you just lose your temper and you get really mad and you just feel terrible about it you confess your sin plead with god i don't want to, i'm never going to do this again god in his omniscience knows you're going to do that another 7832 times god is not impressed with our remorse it's not that it's wrong to have remorse but that's not what impresses god as opposed to that chorus we looked at that, that need-oriented, weepy, I need to weep, I need to cry, I have tear-filled eyes like this is going to impress God. It's, it's bad theology and bad lyrics. So we read how David comes to the end of this prayer in verse 21 and 22, and he says, Do not forsake me, O Lord, O my God. Be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord of my salvation." even though he describes the consequences of his sin in his life, throughout this psalm, it is still theocentric. It is still God-centered. It never He never wallows in his guilt. He never wallows in his sorrow. He never becomes self-absorbed. It never becomes man-centered or me-centered. It's still God-centered. Now, we've looked at a modern contemporary course. We've looked at a... We've looked at a uh, psalm. Now I want to take you to a a hymn. Get out your hymn book and look at the second hymn. Hymn number two, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, written by Robert Robinson in the 18th century. Uh, The third verse deals with his wandering. He was a Methodist, then he was a Baptist. He kind of moved around. He had... Uh, had an interesting life. He was a pastor uh, for, for for many years. He grew up. His his father died when he was young. He was indentured to a man, and and he was very intelligent, very cerebral, and he was working in manual labor. And, and it was obvious that he did not belong there. And and uh, a relative came along, made it possible for him to get some education, and he uh, uh, heard a Methodist preacher preaching the gospel when he was in his teenage years and he trusted Christ as his Savior and realized he had the gift of of being a pastor. And he wrote this hymn. And it is a hymn where he is dealing with the same kinds of things, uh, of sin and uh, in his life uh, before God. And look how he expresses this. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing Thy Grace." Is this theocentric or anthropocentric? It's theocentric. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Praise His name. I'm fixed upon it. Name of God's redeeming love. The focus is on the mercy of God, not on my failures. Second verse. Hitherto thy love has blessed me. Thou hast brought me to this place, and I know thy hand will bring me safely home by thy good grace. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He, to rescue me from danger, brought me with his precious blood. Then the last verse, Oh, to grace how great a debtor, daily I am constrained to be. I don't have to wallow in my tears and beg a thousand times for forgiveness. He says, Like thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. That's that's where we get this sense of his, his struggle with sin in his life. Bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. O take and seal it. Seal it far thy courts above. It's great poetry. It's great theology, it's theocentric, it's not anthropocentric. And it is, it is the result of a man's profound study of the Word and his mature spiritual growth as he reflects upon the grace of God despite the fact that he is prone to be a wandering sinner. See, this is why we sing and we're careful about what we sing is because if we're to do all things as the New Testament says to the glory of God, then that means then what we sing and how we sing it should be done with quality, with excellence, and uh, not uh, reduce itself to the trivial, the commonplace, and the mundane. Well, we've gone through the Old Testament. We've looked at some of these psalms now. And let's just briefly look at the New Testament. There's uh, significant things said about worship, but not a lot in the New Testament. So we can hit this fairly quickly as we, we wrap up this morning. The first time we see worship is in Matthew chapter 2 when the Magi, we don't know how many there were. There were more than three, and there weren't just three. They brought three gifts, but there were more than three. And they came to to worship, this is our uh, Greek word which means to bow the knee. It means to show uh, obeisance to one in authority. They come and they tell Herod that they're looking for the king of the Jews in Matthew two. 2 and we saw a star in the east. We've come to worship him. In verse 8 um, is Herod telling them to go to Bethlehem and search for the... Uh, child, that I may come and worship him too. Of course, he's just trying to deceive them. And then in Matthew two eleven, we see the fulfillment of this. When they come, they fall down to the ground before the uh, infant, baby in the, the infant, the baby in the manger, and they worship him and they give him gifts. So there's this connection between worship and giving gifts in response to the grace of God there in Matthew uh, Matthew two eleven. Later on in Matthew chapter 14:33, Jesus is talking to the disciples, and they have realized who he is, and they, those in the boat, worship him, saying, "You are certainly God's son." So worship is defined here as recognizing who Jesus Christ is. Remember, I keep coming back to the fact that worship focuses on who God is and what he has done. In another passage in Matthew, Matthew fifteen nine, Jesus quotes the old testament and says, But in vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the precepts of men. See, worship has right there's right worship and there's wrong worship. And we we teach our own opinions, we teach our own viewpoint, we teach motivationally, we don't go into the scriptures and exposit and explain the word of God. We're teaching the precepts of men. That's not worship. That's false worship. And that's what Jesus says here. My point is that there's what we see in the New Testament is, and the Old Testament is there right worship, there's wrong worship. Worship isn't defined by whether you feel like you worshiped or not. Worship is defined by biblical uh, instruction. In John chapter 4, Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, and in the context of the conversation, they have talked about whether the Samaritans worshipped correctly at Mount Gerizim, they did not go to Jerusalem, or the Jews were right worshipping in Jerusalem, and Jesus is saying, no, there's coming a time when you won't worship in Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim, and He makes the statement, God is Spirit, and those who worship Him must worship him in spirit and truth now that english preposition in indicates like in or inside the greek preposition is also in but the greek preposition in while it can have a uh, the idea of lo- a locative influence in something it really has the idea of by means of and we worship by means of the holy spirit worship in the church age is energized by the filling of the holy spirit by means of the Spirit and by means of truth. That is doctrine. It is by means of the Word of God. So the Word of God is always going to be central in worship. It's always the centerpiece. Now that phrase in numity is found in another important passage, Ephesians five eighteen, where Paul writes, Do not be drunk by means of wine. See the pagans especially in the Bacchanals in the worship of Bacchus or Dionysius felt like they would get close to God. Their spirit would engage the spirit of the God if they drank wine because Dionysius was the God of wine. So you would uh, drink enough wine. You could have a spiritual experience with your God and speak in tongues and you would be spiritual. That's what's behind that first phrase. Don't be drunk by means of wine. Wine's not a means of spirituality or spiritual growth, which is what your false religion teaches. He says, uh, but be filled, command, be filled by means of the Spirit. It's that same phrase that we have in John uh, 4.24. We are to be filled by means of the Spirit. And then in the next verse, we get the... The results of that, in verse 19, he says, "...speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord." See, the first result that he mentions related to the filling of the Spirit is that there there is an attitude of joy. Joy is the second fruit of the Spirit mentioned in Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. There is this rejoicing. We saw that in our study of the Psalms. There is this rejoicing over the grace of God, and that rejoicing is expressed through singing hymns and songs, spiritual songs and singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Now, this isn't just because you go along and you sing it inside. That's not what this is talking about. It flows out of the orientation of your heart, your soul, your soul to God. Uh, you can't sing quietly in the car something you don't know. See, that's one of the great things I've always enjoyed is as I've gone through life because of my involvement at, at Christian camp when I was younger, because of going through seminary, and we used to begin every seminary class with a hymn. I know a lot of hymns uh, by heart. And so a lot of times when I'm driving down the road, I like just singing hymns to myself. It it focuses my attention on God. It's a reminder of His grace. And if you don't know hymns, you can't do that. You can't fulfill this at all, even in your personal life. That's one reason I like to sing certain hymns. You may think, boy, we've sung this hymn like three times this month. Well, I'm trying to help you learn it. That's why we do it that way. It's not to bore you. It's that if you sing it enough, maybe you will learn it. Same principle with why I keep quoting the same old verses right before Bible class week after week, is because it helps you. I hope by now you've memorized those verses. One of these days I'll change them, and then we'll have some new verses to work on. But that's why we do that. Colossians three sixteen repeats the same principle. It's not related to the to the filling of the spirit. It's related to the Word of Christ, doctrine. Let the Word of Christ, let doctrine, richly dwell within you. See, it's parallel. The Spirit of God fills you with the Word of God. The Word of God is enacted in your life through the Spirit of God. The results are the same. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with, what? Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness. In your hearts to God. You see, singing isn't seen by the Scripture as just some sort of secondary or tertiary thing, some traditional thing that we do in church before we study the Bible on Sunday morning. Uh, Let's get past that singing and let's just focus on what we're here for, which is to learn the Word of God. In the Bible, you see that singing hymns and songs is a vital part of our spiritual life. It's part of our corporate worship to God, and it is a way in which we focus our attention, our thinking on who God is and what He has done. And so there is, when I'm talking in all this series, there is music that is appropriate to prepare us for the thinking, the concentration, the study of God's Word. And there's music that's not. I remember when I was a kid going to camp, there's all kinds of songs we sung at camp that are Bible-oriented and have doctrine in them, but they're not the kinds of songs I want to sing in church as a prelude to the study of God's Word. There are songs that we sang in in good news clubs and in Sunday school classes that I wouldn't sing in church because they're not appropriate to what we're We're targeting, which is the study and concentration on God's Word. But we select the hymns that we do because that's the focal point. Now, next time we'll come back, we'll talk uh, a little bit about music. That gets into the fun part. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this opportunity to reflect upon these things, to perhaps gain a little greater insight into uh, why we sing what we sing why we choose the songs we sing, the significance of the lyrics, why they're important, how to think through the lyrics, how to understand why uh, the lyrics that we choose should be the best that are available because this is quality. We do this to glorify you and all that we do should glorify you. Now, Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, every sin. He didn't leave anyone out. He didn't forget. He didn't miss one. Every sin is paid for. So the issue isn't your guilt, your sorrow. The issue is the work of Christ. He paid the penalty. The issue is believing on Him. Trusting in Him, accepting His work on your behalf, He died as your substitute. By trusting in Him, God will give you eternal life. Father, we pray that as we reflect upon what we studied this morning, that You would challenge us with it, that God, the Holy Spirit, would make this real to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.